The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Welcome to Bloomberg Opinion, listeners. I'm Bonnie Quinn. This week... It's deeply dysfunctional, has turned anti-democratic, and it's a huge problem for the nation. Jonathan Bernstein on echoes of past eras for the Republican Party in today's GOP. And... These are the cheapest calories that are out there. David Fickling on the food insecurity and worse, potentially, coming for huge populations. First, though, it's been two years since George Floyd was murdered on May 25th, 2020. And, of course, the movement towards accountability on race in the wake of that moment. This week, John Rogers Jr., founder of Ariel Investments, was a guest of the Economic Club of New York, and I got to speak with him. Rogers will celebrate 40 years of Ariel's founding next year, yet Ariel is still one of a tiny fraction of minority-run investment firms. I spoke with Rogers about change in the industry, and I got his thoughts on the macro environment. Let's get straight into it. It's been a tough time, John. With almost $18 billion in assets under management, how are you looking at this market sell-off? We were looking at it as a, uh, a time for opportunity. You know, Warren Buffett always talks about the volatility should be your friend. And when you have this kind of dramatic shifts in the market and so many companies have changed uh, so dramatically, we think there's an opportunity to take advantage of some real, real unique bargains in this environment. So we've been adding to our positions each and every week, finding more and more areas where, again, we're excited about putting money to work. Is this a major pivot point, or is this just a resetting, a repricing? I think it's in some ways it's a, I guess it's a repricing. High P multiples have had a multiple compression because, you know, with interest rates going higher, you don't want to pay a lot for future earnings that are going to be delivered 10, 15, 20 years down the road. And the stocks have gone too far. I think they were too expensive. And people just hadn't factored in the higher interest rates and how much it could impact how you value these businesses. So we've had an array of events contribute to this, as well as, as you say, massive inflation and huge uncertainty. Do we see more of a sell-off? I think we're getting, you know, you never know. We all know this is impossible you know, to predict the markets. And, you know, we're long-term investors with a turtle, you know, as a logo to remind us the patience wins. But I do feel like the amount of pessimism and gloom in the market is so high. Everywhere we go, people are talking about how afraid that they are. So when there's so much pessimism, so much bearishness, I do believe you mentioned John Templeton earlier. He always said you want to buy when there's maximum pessimism. I think we're getting into that type of environment. That gives me optimism that we're, we're starting to bottom here. Let's talk a little bit about the economy and what the Federal Reserve is trying to do in order to engineer a softish landing. Do we get to neutral by the end of the year? And roughly, where is that? One of the things I've learned over the 39 years that I've been at Ariel is what gets you is always the surprises, the things you didn't think about, the things you couldn't have worried about. So I think when you have all the Federal Reserve and all the top economists in the world and everybody fixated on whether we can avoid this recession, whether the Fed can do the right thing, I don't think they're going to be too far off. I don't think there'll be some big negative surprise that will come from this. It's so well identified. It's so well talked about. So I don't think we'll get hurt by it. So that's a lot of optimism. We have heard in the last couple of days alone from various investors suggesting that it's a very narrow path to avoid a recession. 
What is the likelihood that we can avoid that recession? Well, someday we'll have a, another recession. You know, everyone's always predicting many more recessions than ever occur. That's sort of one of those cliches that we all talk about and hear about. So I don't see a recession coming anytime soon. As we talk to our management teams, you know, we've just gone through the earnings season. We've been on the phone with CEOs and CFOs of dozens of companies in the last several weeks. Everyone is telling us they're seeing no signs of a recession. The consumer has a lot of money. The consumer has been saving. We know the low unemployment rate. So we don't think it can be a consumer-led recession. I think it'll be a ways off. But if it comes a little bit early, that means it'll just end a little bit earlier. You know, you know people always think it's like this great you know, boogeyman out there. We're going to have this great recession. But eventually, you know, we all know once you have the recession, you have a recovery. And you know, when you go to the annual meeting for Berkshire Hathaway, my, you know, my favorite thing is he always talks about what the Dow did last century, how it started at 66 and ended at over 11,000. I keep reminding myself that last century we had you know, Great Depression, we had many recessions, we had World War I, World War II, we had a pandemic. We get through these. You know, he always says our capitalist democracy is the best system ever invented. And so I try not to get too troubled by this short-term worry of something that can come in and hit us. So we do get through them, but it's the question of the damage that's done, I guess, in the getting through them. When you talk to all of these CEOs, CFOs, supply chain managers and so on, and I know you do, you speak to them on a quarterly basis at least, what are their main worries right now? I think the supply chain issue is, is a worry for a lot of the companies we talk to. You know, it's, called, it's, a, it's, it's a headwind. It's just, you know, it's a problem, but they're working through it and for the most part getting through it and with some challenges, some higher expenses than they would have hoped. But it's not a catastrophe by any means. And at the same time, I think people are worried about inflation. These managements, as we know, most CEOs have never lived through an inflationary period before. They don't know what to expect. They don't know how this can impact them. But so far, so good. People are feeling they're able to raise prices. And you know, so we're, we're spending a lot of time trying to check on that, double check on that, ask all these management teams how they're dealing with it. But so far, they're managing it. So inflation still at an 8% handle. We're not sure exactly how fast it's going to come down or what kind of outside factors are going to help it come down because right now things are not alleviating all that much when it comes to energy prices and frictions in the system. Where do you see the Fed being able to bring inflation down to by the end of the year? I'm not sure by the end of the year it'll be down very much. You know, I still think that they got started too late and they had kept saying this was transitory, kept saying it was transitory, and uh, they didn't quite get it right. So ultimately, it's going to take longer for it to get under control. So whether we get there by the end of the year, maybe it's middle of next year. But eventually, they'll tame this beast and things will be you know, back on track. So if you could put a figure on it, or if you could cite what some of your CEOs are telling you, are they seeing 6% still at the end of the year, 4 to 5? I think it'll be higher, significantly higher than that. That's our view. I would take the over on how high inflation will be at the end of the year. It's been two years since George Floyd's murder on May 25th, 2020, and the movement towards accountability on race in the wake of that moment. I spoke with John Rogers on the financial industry and its race record. We began with his own experience and the people that led him into finance, starting with his father. I was very fortunate. My dad was a uh, Tuskegee Airman and you know, flew over 100 missions in World War II. And he was 39 when I was born. So he had a lot of time to decide exactly what I was going to do at different ages. <laughs> and certain age I had to have a checking account, certain age I had a savings account. I mentioned my 
being a vendor, I had to have a summer job by the time I was 16. And then by the time I was 12, I had to have a stock market uh, portfolio. And uh, it Amazing, was great, right? Yeah, it was a great idea. And you know, the thing was, he, my parents were divorced when I was three, so I'd go visit my dad on the weekends, and he'd have his newsletters piled up for me to read, and the annual reports and the quarterly reports, the companies that he had invested in for me. He wasn't wealthy. It was $250 here and $500 there. And, but as the years went on, it would, you know, and then he took me to meet his stockbroker, a guy named Stacy Adams, who was the first African-American stockbroker on LaSalle Street. You know, he became my role model. He became my mentor. I'd just go and sit with Stacy and watch the ticker tape go by. And he was this unique guy. He'd been there forever. But to have him there for me uh, made, made all the difference. And but my father introduced me to him and uh, yeah, it just became a labor of love. It became fun. Well, and it's phenomenal that you had that. You know, so many people don't. Most people don't. You know, you were probably the exception that you had a dad that was that interested and that, you know, aware of how young he should start teaching you and that you had other mentors like that. If you went out there today, would there be any more mentors or is the ratio still that tiny? It feels to me like, you know, I've been in this business, you know, 15, 20 years, that not that much has changed in that time. So what about 40 years? Has much changed in 40 years? Um, it's, it's changed. It's, 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 you know, and it's accelerating the change since the George Floyd murder. There is a much, much more I think, rigorous and serious uh, efforts to diversify the financial services industry. Uh, Melody Hobson, you know, and my co-CEO, is, we're both getting more opportunities to speak to groups like this, speak to boards of directors, speak to different types of organizations and political leaders. There really is a push, and I'm starting to see some real traction and some things happening. I think I have to say here in New York City, I have to say you guys have been way, way ahead of any other city in the country by far with the kind of leadership you know, we've had from you know, the, the Ken Chenaults of the world and, and others in leadership roles, but also the Ray McGuire's and the Bill Lewis's that have been in investment banking. We've had a lot of progress in private equity. So New York City is one that I think is just really, uh, truly making a difference, but unfortunately, that hasn't been extrapolated throughout the United States in the way that it should. Well, there's one statistic that I just found absolutely terrifying from one of your surveys, and that it's that 1.2% of all assets under management are at minority-owned firms. Is that still the case? 1.2%? Yeah. And that's, that's for all minority firms, I think, the data shows. Correct. So it's not just African-American or, or Latinx. No, the numbers are really, really bad when it comes to money management and mutual funds. What makes that a particularly heartbreaking is you all know here again, here in New York, you know, so much of the wealth and jobs and philanthropy comes through Wall Street. That's a part of the economy where, again, it's been so successful. You have the high profit margins. And in the past, so many progressive institutions, even when they wanted to do the right thing, they did it through the term supplier diversity which implies that, okay, if you're going to work with minority-owned business, it's going to come through supply chain, construction, catering, janitorial services, office supplies, the lowest margin part of the spend, and where the least amount of wealth has been created. And we have hard data that shows that, you know, uh, from McKinsey and BCG showing the Chicagoland spend, business and professional services is $75 billion with profit margins 5 to 20%. Construction is 10th on the list at roughly $25 billion, profit margins less than 1%. So if you really want to make a difference, you have to get rid of this term supplier diversity. The University of Chicago coined a term business diversity. And now our civic committee is using that terminology in Chicago, our 84 largest businesses. The Barack Obama Foundation is using the terminology. 
business diversity. So I think to make a difference, we have to signal to, to people that you want to be able to do business with minorities in everything that we do. That is kind of a uh, kind of un unconscious or implicit bias if you only work with minority firms in the commodity parts of spend and not in the most lucrative parts of our economy. So this, that's the reality. And the other part I would say, last thing I'd say that's disappointing is I bet if you looked at 1.2%, most of that spend is coming from government. Mm. And unfortunately, the universities, the hospitals, the museums, many of the anchor institutions and the foundations have been the least progressive. You would have expected the exact opposite, but they have been the least progressive. What changes that? Is it just complacency? Is it, oh, well, this is the way we've been doing it for the last 20, 30, 40 years, therefore let's just sign on the dotted line again. What gets the fire lit? I think you're right. I think it's partly the, the fact that people have done it the same way for 50 years, you know, just supplier diversity, construction being the focus, and everyone just thinks that's the way to do it without actually thinking about it. People have this definition of small business that hasn't been really thought through in an economy where you have these giant companies that are trillion-dollar market caps. So the prism with which people look at these things, they just look at them the same way and haven't evolved as our economy has evolved into this you know, again, professional services, capital light industries, less manufacturing. So, that, you know, you're right, people haven't adjusted, people haven't changed in the way that the, the world is. The second thing is, because there's so few of us in the financial services industry, I was lucky to, you know, learn about the markets here earlier, you said earlier, but then be on boards like Aon Corporation in Chicago for 18 years and watch Pat Ryan build that into extraordinary enterprise and see how a successful financial and professional services business can grow and thrive and create all kinds of jobs and philanthropy and political empowerment and all aspects. You know, Pat's a genius. But because there's so few of us in those spots, when we sit on a board of a hospital or a museum or university, when they put someone who's diverse on those boards, it's often people who are not coming with a lot of financial services experience. And so they're there to think about maybe social justice issues but not as comfortable raising their hand and pushing for economic justice. And um, something Dr. King used to talk about that all the time, that many progressive white Americans deplore prejudice, but accept or ignore economic injustice. And so you have to have progressive leaders and people of color in the boardroom willing to fight that sort of standard way of looking at the world. John Rogers, Jr. of Ariel Investments. Don't forget to get in touch. All thoughts and opinions welcome. I'm at Vonnie Quinn on Twitter or email vquinn at Bloomberg.net. Bloomberg Opinion is also available, by the way, as a podcast on Apple, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. A review of this week's primaries now with Jonathan Bernstein. Jonathan, we had the extraordinarily interesting primary that we knew it was going to be. Obviously, not just Pennsylvania happened this week. We had Kentucky, Oregon, Idaho and North Carolina. But what did we learn overall that might be applicable to national campaigns? Well, certainly one of the things that we're confirming out of these last set of primaries is that, you know, if you look at it in one sense, Republican voters are not zombies who do whatever Donald Trump says. We've had a series now of candidates, um, whether it's the Idaho lieutenant governor who Trump endorsed, or Dr. Oz in Pennsylvania, or J.D. Vance, who won his Senate nomination with 31 percent, these candidates are getting about a third of the vote. Now, we've had a couple who did a little better, and incumbents that Trump endorses are doing perfectly well, as you would expect, because they're incumbents. But, you know, that means that in contested races, two-thirds of Republican voters are very comfortable ignoring or opposing what Donald Trump tells them to do. So that's something when people say, ah, it's Trump's party, he controls them, 
it's certainly not the case that all Republican voters are sort of in a cult of Trump and will do whatever he says. At the same time, you point out in one of your recent columns that Trumpism is not exactly everything Trump says at the moment. It's this incarnation of right-wing radicalism that changes over time. So if you were a Republican operative, how much would you be paying attention to what Trump is doing and saying? And how much would you be paying attention to the two-thirds of Republican primary voters that are either ignoring some of what he says or all of what he says? Well, exactly. It's not that the Republican Party has suddenly become a functional, normal party. In some of these cases, the reason that Trump's candidates are only getting a third of the vote is because even more radical candidates are getting a big chunk of the vote. This goes back, as you said, historically to Joe McCarthy, to Nixon, to Gingrich, to the Tea Party. And it's not the same in every incarnation, but there are deep connections between that strain of the Republican Party all the way going back to the 1950s or before that and the strain that is now the dominant coalition within the Republican Party. And it's deeply dysfunctional, has turned anti-democratic, and it's a huge problem for the nation. What happens in the cycle where you see that part of the party dominant when that ebbs? That's a good question, and I I don't have a good answer for that. Um, I don't really have a good answer for why it comes and goes, but where it is now is extremely dangerous. You know, the nominee for governor of Pennsylvania, a radical candidate who Trump endorsed only at the last minute, so he really rose to front-runner status on his own. His campaign is based on that he would, if he's governor of Pennsylvania in 2024, certify the Republican candidate as the winner of the presidential election, mm. regardless of what the voters say. Doug Mastriano, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and, and you sort of have to do a double take and, wait, is that really where they are? And the answer is yes, that is really where a number of these politicians have found themselves. And, you know, dem- democracy can't work if one of the political parties is essentially anti-democratic. Jonathan, what role did Kathy Barnett fulfill in the end? Um, this is the extremely radical candidate who uh, had been in Washington on January 6th, et cetera, et cetera, and ran for Senate and wound up getting quite a bit of support in Republican talk radio, but then fell short in the actual election, in part because Republican-aligned media turned against her in the last week. Trump also came out against her, but when she gave her post-election statement, she singled out, I believe, Sean Hannity for coming after her and for interfering in the election. Of course, that's not interference in the election. That's how parties work, is they're, you know, party actors weigh in on, on elections. It's unusual to have party-line media as such a central portion of the party, so important to who picks which candidate. But that's essentially where the Republican Party is now, and that's one of the reasons that they've become so radical and that they are willing to nominate people like the candidate for governor who are probably lousy candidates who may well lose an election that Republicans could win. But that, as long as it's a good product in the Republican marketplace, in the conservative marketplace, that's fine with them. They're making money off of it. It's very telling that the Senate primary between Dr. Oz, David McCormick, and obviously Kathy Ornette was in there as well, ended up being so close. Does it say anything about the amount of money that's being spent? It does. Two of the candidates spent a lot of money and wound up very close, and the third spent a lot less money. That probably made her more vulnerable to last-minute attacks. One of the reasons she had a chance is because the two leading candidates spent a ton of money attacking each other, both their own campaigns and 
outside organized groups that played in the race and spent a lot of money attacking the other candidate. So money matters, but it's never been as simple as money determines the nomination. Jonathan Bernstein there. And next week brings primaries in Georgia, Arkansas and Alabama. We'll be back with Jonathan Bernstein for a review. It's known as red gold. It's been feeding billions of people in places such as India. Indonesia embargoed its export last month and we're seeing that pattern replicate across markets with India banning most exports of wheat this week, sending prices of wheat skyrocketing. I asked David Fickling, what is this mysterious red gold? Palm oil, which people probably have heard a fair bit about from some of the environmental campaigns. Most of the world's palm oil is made in Indonesia and Malaysia. And palm oil is the core of the global vegetable oil market, which is, it, it does not get a lot of attention. But vegetable oils are absolutely crucial for multiple ways. Now, to be clear, palm oil is about 70% of all vegetable oil. So when you hear For instance, in relation to the war in Ukraine, there was a lot of talk about Ukraine as the biggest producer of sunflower oil, Mm. and those exports would end, and that would be a problem. This is true, but sunflower oil is 2 to 5% of global vegetable oil supply. Palm oil is 70%. Soybean oil is about 20%. Everything else is about 10%. So palm oil is absolutely crucial. And also, I think it's important to understand it's a product with multiple different uses. You can use it for food. It's an ingredient in all sorts of foods. There's a lovely mouthfeel, frankly, products with palm oil in them. Um, It's also a very cheap cooking oil. And you'll see in countries like India, it's the largest importer of palm oil. It's a good value cooking oil. It's not particularly healthy, but it's a very cheap source of calories. Well, in fact, we've been been reading that Indian street vendors have to actually steam at the moment because of a lack of palm oil, so they're not able to fry their food. Exactly. And this is an interesting thing in the aspect of global nutrition and hunger. Like I said, if you look at the calories that you get from a kilogram, for instance, of cereal staples, of wheat or rice, the calories from vegetable oil are about 30% cheaper than that. And the calories from sugar are about 20% cheaper than the starchy staples. So the reason things like fat and sugar are so crucial to nutrition in, in lower income countries is that is the cheapest sort of calories out there. And this is one of the reasons, I mean, actually going back to Pakistan, Pakistan has um, some of the highest and, and fastest rising rates of things like type 2 diabetes of anywhere in the world. And you're seeing this transition in a lot of lower middle income countries from undernourishment to problems of the proportion of people being overweight being substantially higher than the proportion of people underweight. And, and that's not unconnected to the fact that these are the cheapest calories that are out there. That's a, a phenomenal thing. I did not know that at all. And it's actually, that's it's pretty tragic, in fact. But at the same time, without this palm oil, these populations are also in trouble and they're not getting the palm oil or it's it's the price is inflated. Explain to us what's going on. Yeah, this is where we come back to Indonesia and we come back again to this issue of import dependence. In the mid-2000s, Indonesia was looking at the rising price of crude oil and its growing dependence on imports of crude oil and did very similar to what you see in the US, saying, well, the solution to this is we blend in some biofuel and this is also a, there may be environmental benefits to this, although there's question marks around that which we can, we can come to later. 
So uh, there have been blending mandates, very similar to the blending mandates that you see in, in the U.S. Here in Australia, where I live, um, there's a lot of blended fuel as well for blending in a rising proportion of palm oil-derived biodiesel into, into road fuel. And at present, 30% of road fuel has to be derived from palm biodiesel. Now, that's a problem because the capacity of the palm oil plantations to supply this is fairly limited. Mm. And although transport fuel is a fairly small source of, of palm oil demand at this point, maybe like 15% of the total, whereas 60% odd goes to food, it's the bit that's growing fastest. And in Indonesia, it's growing fastest due to a government mandate. There's no way around the blending mandate. So if you look for the past few years, back to about 2018, more than half of the growth of palm oil demand globally has been Indonesian domestic demand. And that's putting pressure on the whole sector. Indonesia has essentially put an embargo on exports of palm oil and palm oil derivatives altogether. Prices have risen very fast over the last three years. That's pushing up the prices of cooking oil from palm oil in Indonesia. It's a political problem for Indonesia. In an attempt to push down those prices, you have this export embargo. But, of course, that pushes the price pressure onto other countries, particularly, as, as I said, India, the biggest importer of palm oil, which is ultimately sort of cutting nutritional calories, not the highest quality nutritional calories, but raising the cost of those calories to Indians. All of this is feeding inflation. I guess we see this with a lot of fuels, but one country can feed inflation around the entire world to the point of ousting governments. Absolutely. And you can think of Indonesia in relation to palm oil or Indonesia and Malaysia, certainly. They are the OPEC of palm oil. (laughs) You know, they control, in fact, a much more substantial share of the palm oil market and the vegetable market as a whole. OPEC plus, even if you put all the other economies, you know, Russia in there, it accounts for barely 50 percent of global crude oil supply. Indonesia and Malaysia put them together, it's 60% plus of vegetable oil supply. Is there a substitute, Uh, David? I mean, obviously, sunflower oil, at least coming from Ukraine, it's going to be a problem, you know, in in the near future. And as you say, it's only a, a tiny percent of oil globally. But is there a substitute for palm oil? I'm going to sound like a bit of a broken record here, but it's a little bit similar to Pakistan. I think the solution is renewables and electrification. Electric vehicles in Indonesia, actually their running costs are substantially cheaper than uh, internal combustion engine vehicles. That's despite the fact that Indonesia very heavily subsidizes fuel and, and biofuel. The problem is the infrastructure is not there. The government had a target by 2021 that they would have 170,000 charging stations. In fact, there are only 148. Mm. Um, so the sort uh, of oh, 148 we, with no zeros after it. Yeah, okay. <laughs> against 170,000. Wow. You know, if you have a look at a country like India, India's made great strides around two- and three-wheelers, scooters and rickshaws to electrify that fleet and is, is moving quite fast, not moving fast enough. But the point is... If you look at India, its uh, energy production is not the cleanest. It's one of the world's biggest users of of coal in the grid. But you're seeing a fast increase in renewable production and, crucially, uh, electrification of the road sector is is moving at a fair pace. And you see this in China as well, another country, of course, very dependent on imports of petroleum. Mm. If you power your road sector 
with a large and rising share of electric vehicles and you power your grid with a rising share of domestically produced energy. Ideally, for climate reasons, that should be renewable energy, but in the case of India or China, a lot of that is still coal. But it will still actually have less of a climate impact footprint than petroleum because of the, the efficiencies of electric vehicles. You do that and you reduce the dependence on imported petroleum and you reduce the dependence on um, biofuel, which re- really should not be going into road vehicles where there is a good alternatives now. Wow, that sounds like quite a long-term plan. So just to answer for us then, why is it called red gold palm oil? It's fantastically profitable for some of the sort of lowest income constituency groups in Indonesia and Malaysia. Uh, and this is the reason, you know, I, I talk about a, a bit of a, a biofuels industrial complex in Indonesia, similar to what you have with corn ethanol in, in the US. There are a lot of rural votes in palm oil production. Smallholders account for... 30% or more of production, all of those people vote. And these are people who really need the income from it. Mm. That's one of the things that makes this a hard thing to break. There was an interesting study last year that looked at mayoral elections in Indonesia, and it found that in the run-up to a mayoral election when palm oil prices are high, you see an 18% rise in deforestation. And that's essentially because, they argue, mayors are sort of loosening some of the regulations against deforestation to win votes in the wow. election. It's, it's popular. Bear in mind with Indonesia, there are some big elections coming up. We are seeing palm oil prices at a record. The world, I think, clearly is hoping that we've seen the end of the expansion of palm oil plantations and deforestation. Once these plantations are established, their biofuel is pretty good in climate terms. It's sort of 60 or 70% less than petroleum. But if you cut down rainforest to build a new plantation, the emissions work out as roughly twice what they are from petroleum. So what the world needs to do at this point is to maximize the yield from its palm oil plantations that have already been established. But what we can't afford to do is increase the area that's planted. But looking at the politics of it, uh, looking at the economics of it, at these high prices, I wouldn't want to bet that deforestation has ended. David Fickling there. We're now choosing to exit all conversations. Not with you, though. Do get in touch. I'm at Vonnie Quinn on Twitter or email vquinn at bloomberg.net. We're produced by Eric Mollo. Till next time on Bloomberg Opinion. I was in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean when it happened. There was a sudden jolt and our submarine crashed on the seafloor. We were in total darkness. That's Dr. Dejana Figueroa, a marine biologist and STEM teacher, talking about a deep sea dive she'll never forget. It's funny, when I was a kid, I was afraid of the ocean. And there I was, two miles below the surface. But as a scientist, you prepare for that. Using our training and a little creativity, we fixed the sub and finished our experiments. The dive was just too important. Every dive gives us glimpses at things few people ever get to see. Blowing creatures, fiery undersea volcanoes, When we got back to the surface, I kissed the ground and called my mom, of course. But you know what? I wouldn't trade that dive for anything. Dr. Figueroa uses her passion for STEM to discover new things and make the world a better place. She can STEM, so can you. Check out She Can STEM for more stories and inspiration. A message from the Ad Council.